Lord, what a privilege it is to be your people at this time and in this place in our day. And I thank you for your word, which continues throughout the ages to feed us so well. I ask, Lord, that as we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, that you would take our minds now and think through them. You, you take my lips and you would speak through them. That you would take our wills and bend them once and for all to yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Story is told of a local bartender who was a former power lifter, busting through his shirts kind of guy. He was so strong, he could squeeze a lemon, and then if he handed it to you, there's nothing you could squeeze out of it. So the bar thought, ah, oh, to get some patrons, we'll offer $1,000 to the first patron who can come along and squeeze the lemon out of it. And for years and years, all these people would come after he would squeeze the lemon out, they would try to win the $1,000. Steelworkers, nothing. Longshoremen, nothing. Big, burly powerlifter guys couldn't get one drop out of that worn-out lemon that this bartender was squeezing. Until one day, 125-pound, balding, graying little man with his pants hiked up to his armpits, walks in and says, I'd like to try. The bar busted out in laughter. So they said, yeah, this is going to be good. No, really, I'd like to try. And they said, the bartender goes, all right, that's fine. We'll try it. He squeezes it out just like he always did and then hands it to the wee little man. And the wee little man squeezes one drop, two drops, three drops, up to six drops. And the bar just busts out. Yeah, wow, that's amazing, little guy. Good job, good for you. And so the bartender rings the cash register and starts to pony up $1,000. And he goes, I, I, I just can't believe it. We've been doing this for years. You know, longshoremen, steel workers, guys who are big and strong. What's your secret? What do you do for a living? The guy smiles and goes, I work for the IRS. <laughs> When, when, when it comes to giving and stewardship and commitment, so many American believers go, oh, man, I, I got nothing left to give, man. I can't squeeze one more drop out of my bank account. Well, if that's where you are this morning, take a deep breath. Let it out, because that's the wrong starting point, okay? We're going to start where the scripture starts, as always we do here at Christ Church. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice it's in the back of the bulletin. Because God's word has a different way in the way we live our lives. It's joyful, it's liberating, and it's extremely generous. Paul is writing in this letter to the church in Corinth. The second letter is written so that they can trust him as their primary minister because there's these super apostles. He calls them later on in the letter. That's a very derogatory word. He's calling them because they're bringing strange teachings into the church of Corinth and he wants them to trust the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be self-righteous 
you can be righteous in Christ, and that's joyful. And so what he's doing in this section of the letter is he's writing a fundraising letter. Yep, I said it. It's a fundraising letter, and it's in the Bible of all places. He's doing it by talking to them about how the Macedonians have given because this is ancient Roman provinces. This is what we now call Greece, and Greece was divided north and south in between Achaia in the south and Macedonia in the north. So just imagine the United States divided up in half, the north, we up in the north are Macedonia, the real generous ones out of our poverty, as Paul's talking about, and the, down in Achaia, you have Athens and Corinth and all these wealthy cities, okay? And Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. And what we see here, and he shows why the Macedonians are so liberated and why they're so generous and they're freed from the need of money as a definition of who they are as followers of Christ. And we learn three great principles in this passage. One, God owns it all. Two, our bank balance isn't the indicator of how generous we should be. And three, because Jesus gave it all. All right? Pretty simple, right? God owns it all. My giving is not based on my bank balance because Jesus gave it all. Let's look at these, shall we? Verse 2. This demonstrates that God owns it all. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they, the Macedonians, gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. Why? Because they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, to us. It says, though they had a severe trial, overflowing joy in their extreme poverty welled up in a rich generosity because they gave themselves first to the Lord. Literally, in verse 3, it tells us the Macedonians were already poor. It even says they're the kind that are rock bottom poverty. And yet they gave themselves first to the Lord and then they made a donation. Why? Well, Paul cannot mean that Macedonians gave their hearts to the Lord for the first time. They're already believers. Okay? They are people who have totally tr placed their trust in the grace of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and getting involved in their community and beyond to even give money for the Jerusalem church, which this collection is for. Demonstrating that Jesus truly is Lord of their lives. Because if Jesus isn't Lord of your life, you don't have salvation. Because God warns God's word defines their lifestyle, not the culture that's around them. So what Paul must mean then is that Macedonians saw a need, and they also recognized their own poverty before the Lord. That because what the Lord has done for them, they're going to pass it on. And so as a result, they were liberated for their need for stuff as their definition of, as a person. As they get rid of their money as a definition, just imagine the dignity that they realized that they had. Think of the usefulness that they felt. Think of the dignity they had, the, that the power of money didn't have power over them so they could release it for the lives of the impoverished that are in the Jerusalem church at this time. 
And the thing that liberated them to do that was the knowledge that everything belongs to God. They were merely only the trustees or the stewards. Okay, Everything they had, everything they were, belonged to God. And that's the first principle we need to understand here today, my friends. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Job 41.11, where God says, everything under the heaven belongs to me. Now, our first reaction as American Christians really is, if you're honest with yourself, you never say this out loud, but you feel it, because I do at times. I say, wait a minute. I've worked my whatever off to get where I am now. You know, what do you mean everything I have is his? The answer to that is, okay, you've worked your whatever off, but where'd you get your whatever? Okay? Why weren't you born mentally disabled like some? Why do you have good health that you have? Where'd you get the brain that you have? You know, we live in a country where literally 95% of the average workforce, which earns $46,000 a year, is greater than 98% of the world. So my question to all of us is, where do we get the wherewithal to do all this hard work that we've done? And the answer is, the wherewithal, the whatever, is a gift from God. Just as Adam was put into the world to take care of it, the world itself was a gift to him. So our wealth, whatever level we are, whether we have ten talents or five talents or one talent, is God's. And so the doctrine of trusteeship is critical to our understanding that this is God's, not ours. And it's liberating, my friends. And it makes us generous people in all of our lives. One of the most dehumanizing things about being in prison is that you can't move around like you want to and the fact that your possessions are taken away from you and you can't work. It's the reason why extreme socialism and collectivism are so dehumanizing and that's why they failed. It's the reason why neighborhoods where people majority own their homes are better than those with lots of rentals. Why? We have been created to care for what God has given us, all right? So therefore, God owns it all. Secondly, our giving, and for us to be generous in our living and content in Christ, is not based on our bank balance. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. We saw that in the parable of the talents that Bob read for us today. There was a guy with ten, another one with five, another one with one. A talent is equal to one year's wage. Imagine that all your pay got paid in one day for a whole year. And it's a gift given to you. Okay, so, so we'll take the average salary of an American worker is $44,564. That wouldn't be a bad gift, would it? Take it, and the steward said, the, the Lord says, or the master says, take care of this. You can see why the master was so upset. 
He took $44,000 and buried it in the ground. Okay? So ordinarily, the limitations on our giving typically are our own needs, and then a prudent salting away of our money for the future needs and emergencies, and then beyond that, we give. But what these Macedonian Christians did was they cut into their lifestyle. They said, we're going to give to the place where it actually changes how we live our lives. It changes the level of our necessities. I would have to say that we're talking about in 2 Corinthians 8, it means it's radical enough so it changes how the way we live. If it doesn't, we only give God the leftovers. Yeah, have you heard the true story about the farmer? This reminds me of this story, by the way. You know, farmer comes out and his prized cow has given birth to twins. You know, and he says, praise God, honey. We, I, we got two cows and I'm going to give, at the end as we raise them up, I'm going to give one to the Lord. All the money that I get is going to go to the Lord. And she goes, oh, sweetheart, that's wonderful. Three months later, he comes back and he says, oh, sweetheart, this is a horrible day. She goes, why? What happened? The Lord's calf died. <laughs> she goes, how can you tell the difference? Oh, I know. It was the Lord's calf, not mine. You see, it's always the Lord's calf in our lives, isn't it? Isn't it? When we say, I can't afford to give, what we mean is, I can't afford to give without it is actually burdening me. If I give, then some of the burden of this need will shift over onto me, and I won't be able to do something that I want to do. Jonathan Edwards says, if you never give unless it doesn't burden you, you're not bearing anybody's burdens. We see this throughout the scripture, that the generous give not based on what they have, but based on a different motive. We see that in the widow's offerings in Mark chapter 12. You know that story well. Widow comes and places a mite. That's equal a penny. That's all she owned. And she did it very quietly, and she was a little rather embarrassed to give. After all the Pharisees and all the religious know-it-alls came in with great fanfare, look how much I'm giving and putting in thousands, thousands. Jesus says she gave the most because she gave it all, 100% of what she had. No, my friends, our giving is not based on what we have. Our giving is based on a different motive. And that motive is because Jesus gave everything. Look down at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of, other, earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We'll never be truly generous. We'll never be fully liberated unless we look at the grace of Jesus Christ and it liberates us in two ways. By the experience of the grace of Christ that changes our hearts and the model of Jesus Christ that guides our lives. The experience means 
Was there ever a time in your life when you came that saw no, no matter how good you are, you fall short of God's holiness, His perfection? You ever come to that place where you recognize, I'm not living the way that I should? I'm not good enough. I'm trying to be self-righteous on my own. Until Jesus comes along and says, that's right, you're not good enough. I have to die for you. I have to pay your penalty. And now that I've paid your penalty, if you receive me as my, your Savior and Lord, you'll have real riches. Because that's the riches that Paul's talking about. You have the riches of adoption. I'll bring you into my family. You have the riches of acceptance. I clothe you with my righteousness. I give you the riches of power. I will put my life into you by the Holy Spirit. And you begin to look at your stuff in a different way, don't you? And it changes the way you look at your material goods. It really does. You know, for example, if you were dying, and I was a doctor, and I came to you and said, hey... The Food and Drug Administration has just discovered a cure for your disease. And it's 100%, 100%. You're 100% going to die unless you take this cure, which will 100% cure you. But you're going to have to sell your house, all the contents of your house, and your cool Chevy Equinox. <laughs> what would you do? You'd sell it. Because what good is an iMac or a Chevy Equinox if you're not alive? <laughs> it pales in comparison. Because when it comes to looking at what our Lord Jesus Christ has truly done for us upon the cross, all of the things that used to be so important to me are now expendable. And so those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, he is so precious in everything in our lives that used to define us have now become eternally and utterly expendable. It changes the way you look at it. That's why Paul can say, do you know the grace of Jesus Christ? Do you know you're spiritually poor no matter whatever was in your bank account? Do you really know that you have real riches in Jesus Christ? And if you have the real riches Jesus can give you, do you realize that changes your attitude toward everything? The way I use my time, the way in the ministry I'm involved in, and the way I use my money. And to the extent that you know that, that leads to liberation, which leads to great generosity. The experience of grace gives us a change in our personalities, but the model of God's grace gives us a standard, a rule of thumb, if you will. Because Jesus Christ gave everything... And people then say, well, how much should I give to God's work and to the poor and to needy Christians? Well, how much? Well, I can't tell you that. Paul wasn't telling them that. He says, I, I don't tell you this as a command. Okay? And if, if Paul wouldn't do it, after all, I won't do it. But there is a guideline in throughout the scriptures, and that is the Old Testament tithe was required of all believers in the Old Testament that a tenth of their gross income throughout the year. Yet the New Testament doesn't say much about the tithe, except very indirectly. So what do we conclude? Well, we're to conclude this. 
Are we more blessed or less blessed than Old Testament believers? Are we more indebted or less indebted than Old Testament believers? Are we more responsible or less responsible than Old Testament believers? So the real question is, is it possible that the New Testament says, well, the Old Testament required a tenth of our income, but for you, not so much. Is that what this is saying? No, the reason the New Testament doesn't bring up the tithe is because Jesus didn't tithe his life for us. Jesus gave everything for us. If not, we'd all be lost. And the point is, I believe the New Testament assumes the Old Testament. And the only possible explanation of the Old Testament standard is a rock-bottom minimum. That's what we aim for as a starting place, is to shoot for the tithe. And those of us who can't get there, we take a step toward it this year when it comes to our financial giving. And it's a rule of thumb. That's where we start. But when we recognize all that our Lord has done for us, for some, the tithe is too little, and we can do better. And the question is, does it it's become a little bit of a burden for us? And that's the whole point. It impacts all of our lives. It, repriori- it reprioritizes our, the way we use our time, our time with the Lord in prayer and in his word. Our reprioritization of making this time on Sunday mornings at 8, 9, 30, and 11 a priority as the highlight of my week. Not Saturday night. Not the tailgate. Not the 1 o'clock kickoff or the 4 o'clock kickoff. Prioritize our, our, our ministry among one another in our small church gatherings, wherever we are. Reprioritizes our ministries because we all have gifts. We don't come just on Sunday morning, we come to serve because that's what the covenant stresses. We're here to serve one another and the world. It reprioritizes the way we give. It's all of our lives, my friends. And so the question for us is, is the way we live our lives throughout the week the life that Jesus truly died for as we come here on Sundays? Because he gave it all, we give it all. That's our motive. He owns it all, so we give, because he gave everything. So here are the facts as we're going into stewardship season from now to the end of the year. Our attendance this year is up 7.3%. Thank you very much, my friends, for participating here. We're glad you're here. God, praise God. Most churches would die for that. Did you know that? 90% of churches are plateaued or declining. 90% of American churches are plateaued or declining. We're up 7.3%. Praise God. So is our participation in our small church, our small groups. It's wonderful to see. And our financial giving is up in an extraordinary way, much so than I've ever seen in my 11 years. It's great to see. And with that in mind, as we prepare from the vestry level for our budget for 2019, knowing that we're decreasing our giving to Lakewood Anglican 25%, we rejoice with that, but it's also bittersweet that our friend Bob Andrew is stepping down, you know, he'll be with us, but knowing we have these extra incomes coming in and with the extra giving, we're praying 
that God will bring to us an assistant rector who will be in charge of ministry of family and youth. Because this is the biggest hole we have. We need to come alongside, and the ACNA is doing some great things to help families navigate the structured lives that we all live today. So we're going to pray that God provides all these things, but that takes every single one of our participation. You've been given a stewardship card, am I correct? If you could pull that out right now, and I'm going to have Brian come up here in a second. All right. Chris will be running around handing these out because he stood up. All right. One per family, please. You know. So I want to encourage you. If you haven't discussed this with your spouse, and you don't, you're unsure, just put your name down and say praying. It's okay. You can get it to us sometime between now and the next few weeks. We really like to have, we really like to have these in by the next December vestry meeting. But the reality is, being Stewardship Sunday, we, Commitment Sunday, we make our commitments to the Lord today. Not only with our giving, but with our time and our ministries. So I'm going to ask Brian to play, and we can discuss it as a, as a family together, quietly among yourselves. And if you're unsure, you're not sure, just put praying your name down, and you can get back to us. But God owns it all. It's not based on how, much your bank, how big your bank balance is. But let's take that step this year. Increase it 1% of your gross Take a step toward the tithe. And for some who are already tithing, perhaps you can give even more. Because we're all to give to where it feels like a little burden. So that God is glorified. Because later on in chapter 9, it's Paul who says, Each one must give as he's made up his mind, for God loves, not cheerfully or not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let us bring the harvest in this day.